0: Hi, and welcome to Declarations, the human rights podcast run at the Center of Governance and Human Rights, CGHR for short, here at the University of Cambridge. I'm Sarah Mohammed, a PhD student in Politics and International Studies here at the University of Cambridge.
1: And I'm Matt Mahmoodi, and I'm a PhD student here at the Center of Development Studies, and we're your hosts for this season of the Declarations podcast.
0: With every episode, we'll be exploring contemporary debates about politics and human rights with the people who study them,
1: the people who fight for them, both here in the UK and around the world. Today we're talking about human rights and intervention. Do local contexts and contingencies matter?
0: We have the absolute pleasure to speak to the postdoctoral research associate at the Centre of Governance and Human Rights, Dr. Joki Womai. Dr. Womai has a long history with human rights, both within academia and the practical realm. We are incredibly grateful to have her.
1: Also joining us today is our regular panelists, Miusha Bastani, Arindrajit Basu, and Michael Barton. Welcome, guys.
2: My name is Joki Wamae. I am a Kenyan uh, scholar here at the University of Cambridge. I'm a postdoctoral research associate at the Center for Governance and Human Rights. My research is kind of hinged on different themes. One is critical, I use a critical theory and praxis, and so using a critical theory and also a decolonial approach in my work, I've been looking at uh, transitional justice within what I would call the school of critical transitional justice, and also looking at what is it like to decolonize human rights, to decolonize transitional justice, to decolonize uh, most intervention work that has been done. so. And that so that's generally, and I think on the intervention side, those are my interests. But beyond that, I also have interests in developing African political thought and African feminisms as and, te- and theories arising from what is, uh, I mean, uh, African feminisms and African thought, lovely. political thought to be specific.
0: Mm-hmm. That's lovely. Thank you so much. Um, can you just go ahead and quickly explain your research for us? Keep us up to date.
2: So my research currently is a continuation of what has been my I, my doctoral work which I I was been doing for the last four years this research is about the politics of of intervention in Kenya and I think at this point in time especially in the African context where the interve- different modes of intervention whether it's judicial intervention the ICC or Military um, intervention, like we saw so with NATO in um, in ju- during uh, Gaddafi's time in Libya. So the different forms of intervention. I think right now, the, both at the African Union level and also at the v- everyday level, there's a lot of back kind of backlash against uh, external intervention in Africa. And I think it's an important time also to start rethinking what does to start thinking what does this mean, and beyond. Um, the dominant forms of uh, narratives and discussions that already exist and also in the literature and in scholarship to do with um, inter- uh, elites elites reacting to intervention. I think my work goes beyond that and it looks at, at the everyday level what does intervention mean to them and what narratives then exist at the everyday level. How are they resisting? Sometimes how are they co-opting? Or even appropriating the language of international interventionists.
1: That's really interesting. I think there's a real lack of scholarship and understanding how exactly ideas about human rights and intervention translates to the ground. And so I wonder what your findings are on that front.
2: My findings are varied. I specifically researched and continue to research in the Kenyan context. And that's the 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 why the more reason we need this localized context and to start rethinking what about the frictions? Let's call them. Say the frictions of when international, whether it's international justice or international humanitarian intervention, meets the ground. What happens? Do we create a new way of thinking? Do we create new narratives? Or what? How do those frictions? Um, w- what does it portend? And what new thinking does it bring? And that's exact the essence of what we are challenging using a normal kind of normative ideas. Um, in universal ones and assuming like transitional justice it means it's a good thing for instance for uh, trials or truth telling is is good because as after 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 violence or whatever that a country is going through that assumption that and assuming that it becomes a neutral concept so i think at the, in kenya i found different things but at the everyday level one concept maybe i'll focus on just one concept because there are lots of things i've I've researched around it justice for instance um so the icc when the icc um came to kenya started investigations uh, that was in 2009 soon after the 2007, 2008 violence. So, one thing that came out of that process is uh, the need for a trial, and not just a trial, a transitional justice process. The time, I mean, by the, the time then, they thought we need this so that we can deal with the issues that led to the violence, the root causes of the violence. And so, one of the things was we need a trial process. Uh, what trial process? And based on any anyway, local politics, they couldn't agree on a local process and they went for the ICC. We need a uh, Truth-telling process. So again, they they had a truth, justice, and reconciliation commission. We need institutional reforms and a number of varied pillars of uh, what Ruti, people like Ruti Taitel, who 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 started theorizing on transitional justice, talks about. So those things were implemented. I think without thinking about the different. What does uh, if, for instance, we charge somebody and say, uh, take this person to the ICC. Yes, that of course is our universal kind of and neoliberal thinking of what justice is. But those people who uh, who, who had gone through violence, who were victims of the violence, would take the same justice concept and decide actually, we're actually going to protect those who the ICC is looking for for all manner of reasons. And it's complex. I would, it's a long discussion if I went into. But it's interesting then to see how such a concept of justice, when I interviewed, I did lots of lots of interviews for almost one year. People will say, no, actually, the kind of justice I need is we would like, for instance, to be paid the same compensation like another group. So it became about something I call in my work process justice. So justice in the processes so you see it's very contextual Mm -hmm. whatever that was going on at that time then they start seeing injustice based on the process um also like economic justice and justice that can address still ongoing poverty or a long uh, long long uh, histories of poverty so then justice becomes different at different levels so that's the long and short of your question you it's hard to answer at like within an African context or within my research. So in different pockets you would find justice means so different things at different, con- li- even at very different local contexts.
3: So from w- what you're saying is that the future of enforcing human rights is possibly where you take into account local lived experiences. So. In terms of operationalizing this, how do you see sort of the international community that wants to seek justice, but in many ways is not able to do so simply because they don't have the lived experiences? How do you think that this international community can link up with local organizations or local people? How can they just make this sort of linkage better? Is there any way the international community can support local endeavors? I mean, I- either in, in Africa or other parts of the world as well. That's a good question.
2: Um, that's also what I've been grappling with, <laughs> because it's, it's it's actually the it's the main anyone who is who also sees the value for f- not intervention but let's say uh, justice and that dignity of hu- all human beings, and also again sees the mistakes that uh, in the international community makes because many times they remain oblivious of the global inequalities that perpetuate this unequal relationship that you know gives rise to intervention, and not just that, an assumption that they have the, the kind of liberal peace, uh, human rights, universal, dis- the, the universal discourse about human rights since the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1947 is the discourse for everybody. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not saying it's not. I mean, of course, I think, I don't want to also go into arguments or defending cultural relativism. And that's usually, I think, the, the, the dilemma. You know, it's, om- it's almost like, oh, then if you're not supporting universal human rights, you're supporting cultural relativism. And that's where, I say, minorities like women or people or, you know, or poor ethnic minorities are being are harmed by dictators. But I think it's 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 that that kind of bifac or you know, that kind of binary is is problematic, mm-hmm. and as scholars we need to start thinking there's an in between actually, and that's what my work does. I want to say there's an in between. Mm-hmm. None of this is giving us the answers. It's not either or, hum- universal discourses or cultural relativism. I think we can find an in between. And and that's and I that's why I like your question. What then can be done? I mean, it's. I think it's at many levels, from a practical level, in terms of hiring people from those regions to work again in uh, in these organisations. But again, I also um, as much as I, I say that I also contradict myself because I, I so I also don't quite because I see like for instance the. The, the, the pro- chief prosecutor, Fatu, Fatu Bansuda, mm-hmm. is a Gambian. Uh, all these other interventionist organizations have people from the global south. Even the UN for a long time had Kofi Annan, Ban Ki-moon. You know, people from the global south had in these organizations. But again, who has the power at the end of the day? If it's the UN, it's the P5. Again, Ameri- and if it's America, not just the P5, has so much weight, and America, the US comes with is, is very keen on the whole liberal peace theory, the right to protect, you know. So it becomes, in Canada, so it becomes very, very hard to, even if you're a national of the South and you're, you want to bring in your context, to then operate within a system already that it's not really about you, it's, it's systemic. So for me, and I see, I see a lot of interest going into also regional, Developing maybe we, the the more we need to also support regional um, human either human rights organisations and and also that there's a lot of good work for instance in the African Commission on Human and and Human Rights uh, Human and People's Rights in uh, the Gambia, it has been doing great work in terms of um, making sure or uh, through 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 also not just legal but through the commission, so many peoples who, like for instance, indigenous people have taken cases there, women, and I think those cases have been favorably um, addressed. So there, there are all these spaces I think we need to engage. There's also, I'm sure, an Asian Human Rights uh, Commission. But again, also we need to help, or not we, really, I think national at the end of the day, as much as we cannot run away from the nation state sovereignty and everything. So nations need to address their 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 legal systems. Because at the at the end of the day the only reason that you know, that process of complementarity, people go to international courts or international call for the UN Security Council to intervene is because we are not dealing with those issues. So for me, it's it's still, it's an ongoing dilemma, but we should not become, we should not look at it as either or. That's that's my take home. Yeah.
1: Um. Something that I wanted to ask about is that uh, this has obviously been a big year for states kind of turning away from the ICC, which is a process that's been going on for a long time, but... Uh, I think last month Burundi uh, withdrew formally from the ICC and you have other states talking about doing the same. I guess I'd like to hear how that relates to your research and in particular how kind of localized and lived experiences come into that process as opposed to uh, elite decisions about how to engage with specific international institutions.
2: Yes, I think most... One thing... Kenyan case did and which is my focus. I focus on the, the ICC and the Kenyan case and it's probably the the one of the first kind of long-term research on long-term lived experiences in the face of intervention you know and that resistance and yes and one of the things that has been happening is elites you know at the top level at the AU saying oh we've withdrawn from El Bashir Kenyatta and now Burundi, South Africa also had something like, oh, we are leaving the ICC. So I think first this is, mo- it's more, I think most elites are doing it for at a very symbolic level. Like we are tired of this whole system that assumes that, you know, and also the global hierarchies that have to do with um, the whole universalism of, of human rights. So, they're challenging that. And that's, that needs to be seen. And I know, of, as somebody who used to work for, for civil society human rights organizations, knowing how, again, many ordinary people sometimes, the only way you can, you may find justice or you may find uh, whatever issue that you're clamoring for from the outside. So, I know, I also see there's, it's, it's, a, it's actually a, a very dicey situation. But also, on the other hand, there's need for um states or st- uh, for 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 states to f- to start feeling like we can own our justice process we mm-hmm. yeah but so for me it's also the the challenge is as the, the these elites if they're going to pull out from the ICC they need to show us that they have have respect a, 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 you know are respecting human rights because as much as they keep also challenging this whole um Universalism of human rights and and the whole neoliberalism liberal peace theory about it you when your dignity and your rights are affected or are denied you you don't even need to read have read anything or you know you know it you know it by yourself you know and I think every system should guarantee everybody's integrity, uh, sanctity of human life and all those um, rights that are enshrined in the Bill of Rights. So that for me is the most important thing. A country should only pull out from the ICC if it knows it has itself and for the next many years it has set up institutions um, that will guarantee that sanctity of uh, of at least the Bill of Rights that are basic for every, every human being. And also within that context, because also as much as we there are also basic rights that are basic to all human beings there are also others that vary from context to context and i think um that's part of the work i speak to
1: so am i right in taking that in a lot of ways you take the icc as sort of a placeholder for when we're in an imperfect kind of system and in a situation in which we were to emerge into a more perfect, more legal provisions for enforcement of human rights principles, then the ICC would ultimately be unnecessary.
2: Yes, I actually think so. I think the ICC, as long as it's constituted the way it is right now, it will always be contested. As long as, uh, for instance, and there's this charge against, uh, on selective bias, on lack of universal membership. And, not, and and beyond even if even if it had universal membership if we have if the US or um China were members especially the US as long as again the US will come in with and and its its kind of its discourses will still be the dominant right, right. i don't think it can speak the, the the institution can succeed in in making sure that um that, the, I mean, it can't succeed in advancing whatever it, I mean, human rights, whether it's the ICC or the UN. And I think that, and that's what was interesting also in my work, because then what many states have been doing at the elite level and la- and it's also trickling down to the everyday level and that's a, something interesting i found is then you take this icc because you can um, you can't almost fight it not just the icc but any other international organization that is in humanitarianism and uh, interventionism and you kind of use it you you use your agency and, and and you decide I'm going to take this and uh, use it to advance whatever. So elites, for instance, in Kenya, and I write about that in an article. Elites take so took the ICC, took the TGRC as a site for political contestation between themselves, and not what Ruti Taitel and others think it was. It's not a neutral. It's not a neutral space for anything. To, to help to advance human rights or to end impunity, in Kenya it became a site for political contestation. And so I'm not sure that um, I... So I, yes, probably, as a, I, I don't also see it as a placeholder because it's hugely problematic. And that's why I hope we could also have regional organizations that would be the, the placeholders.
3: In the first episode of this podcast, I, Matt called me a pessimistic lawyer and that's because even though I'm studying international law and I've studied law for five years now, I am apprehensive about the potential it has in actually generating change, both at the domestic level, because if you consider the idea of due process, it sounds very nice and everyone should get fair treatment in the rule of law. But it so happens that, I mean, I, of course, know more about my home country of India, but in many cases, judges have their own biases. So biases against women that have come out recently in two absolutely ridiculous judgments on, on rape recently. Um, and at the international level as well, if you consider international mechanisms and how they work, you do have an individual complaints that can go to the Human Rights Committee, the UN. But then, I mean, there are, there are no enforcement mechanisms. So the judgment is basically like just a commentary given by the expert sort of board. And uh, unless you have these regional organizations actually implementing them on the ground, my question to you is where do you really see the law, both d- domestic institutions and international law? Where do you see this in the narrative of human rights? What can law play any role at all? Or are we just hyping up the possibility of this idea of human rights law, both domestically and internationally? What's your take on that?
2: I think it depends on which law. Mm. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, it depends on which law because Human rights laws, what we would call human rights laws, are many, are also very specific to different issues. And so, depending on the context and what, the, again, that context takes as they are ready to accept, and not the context, of course, is the policy makers, the lawmakers. So, for instance, I've seen, again, speaking, say, from my Kenyan context, when it came to the children's rights bill. That was quite a number of years ago, maybe 2000, early 2000. Um, So that is enshrined, for instance, in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, you know, the right to all the rights of children and what it entails. So that was implemented in Everything you know, as it was, and it was implemented, and it became a bill—not be- uh, just a bill, be- an act of parliament. So, because of course, what does nobody wants to fight with children? You know, they are not—they are not. It's not—you know—everybody loves children. So that's not going to be difficult to implement, and that's a human rights law, as as it were. But when you start implementing laws, like for instance, um, women's laws, women's rights to say bodily integrity um um and our personal autonomy right to abortion uh women, even just uh, sex, sexual 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 violence and there's usually a lot of debate about say for instance rape in marriage mm-hmm. you know and many parliaments will not even allow that and largely all parliam- most parliaments in the world even here in the west they are mainly men You know, apart from um, even places, say, like Rwanda that are leading the world in terms of most parliamentarians in the world. um, Unless you have such situations and also women who are thinking from a very feminist perspective and men, of course, who will say no, who will use their numbers to pass laws then that are favoring them. Laws to do with LGBT. So, depending on the country, they'll be implemented. In others, this is you know they will not. So it's oh, it's and not and not. Let's not think also because also when we think about human rights laws, there's this almost notion that it's countries from the global south. You know, in Africa and Asia and Latin America. No, Latin America has been a bit pro. It's seen as progressive on human rights, but after the dictatorships. But it's normally Africa and Asia where we think. In, mid, in the Middle East, of course, where there's that uh, erroneous notion that it's only these people who are anti-human rights laws. I mean, the other day, the, 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 uh, the rapporteur, the, uh, the special rapporteur, uh, what is he? I think it was here he's a Kenyan, who was uh, the, the first chair of the National Commission of Human Rights in Kenya. And he came to Britain here to, to assess, uh, I think, freedom of assembly. So he's the rapporteur on freedom of assembly and a number of rights uh, freedoms there on meeting and assembly. And the, the, if you just check the British press, the British parliamentarians, they ref- they were very nasty to him, and they would say, "No, you know why? Why are you coming to assess us? And of course, because the freedom of assembly, he was taking of he was he was taking them on. Uh, for instance, you know about prevent the prevent law, course, yeah. yeah. And so, so. F- So you would expect a country like Britain that uh, imagines itself or projects itself as this progressive hubbinger of human rights to also be very receptive. But they were very opposed to what Maina Kiyaya was saying. And they would. He wants us, you know, because he was challenging them on what they've they've been doing on uh, prevent and the anti-terrorism um, and their their strategies on countering violent extremism and how 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 most of them are problematic. But that 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 became a very big deal. So such a law would not be implemented in this country, and it's not a human. It's a human rights law. So I. So you see, it's it all depends on where, yeah.
0: So you just spoke to, for example, the U.K. and you 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 said that the United Kingdom imagines itself as the exclu- having the exclusive preserve of human rights and justice, um, and to being the center from which these kind of ideas need to emanate outwards into like the periphery. I'm wondering what kind of uh, impact those kind of questions of larger constellations of global power come to bear on who already has the human rights and who it needs to be taught and trained, and how does that map out globally? Mm -hmm.
2: I mean, and that's why sadly, and I think that's why many of this um, intervention, human rights intervention and human, especially human rights intervention are failing because of exactly that. I think now, if now it's 50 years for instance I speak a lot from the African context because that's what I'm well versed in but also say in the Asian subcontinent in the Middle East uh, many of these countries in Africa in Asia have been independent since I don't know the 1950s 60s and most of them that assumption that they did not have rights is hugely problematic and it comes from a very Enlightenment thinking uh, period, which is racist actually, needs to be called for what it was, racist. So that assumption that, you know, and uh, and that it's it's part of that whole modernity, modernity, enlightenment. We need to teach these people what is human rights, and then you use uh, your own. So those people who sat to write the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Who, I mean, it was, it was in Europe, they had their different concept of human rights, individuals. If I go to my context, you know, in, in even just my community, that concept of individualism is only coming about after the colonial encounter with the British. And I can imagine your experiences also in India, in, you know, in, in, in Iran. It's many of us in Somalia, you live a communitarian uh, way of living so it's not it's not an individual so then when you come and tell me one of the main things about human rights you're an individual and these rights are yours and i'm and and many people from our context it's not a, we don't live it's not about the the individual is not the one at the, at the at the core it's the community of course that's also it comes with its own problems because again which which uh, in this whole uh, as context of a community who more some people are valued more than the other like men most of the time older elderly people and so so of course it's i'm not saying that it's 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 perfect it's problematic but i think i i i i, I sympathize even with those who are criti- who are critical of this uh global constellations and i'm one of those who also critique it but also also critique i think on both sides but we need to be we need to be aware and especially when also we 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 assume that it's it's not it's neutral. Yeah? It's hugely problematic. I think also scholars from the global south need to start theorizing on what then human rights means for us within our context. And privileging that discussion and that scholarship as just as important and and also not just the scholarship but it should also inform institutions that do this intervention work and human rights work so i think a lot of what
1: you're talking
0: about has to do with decolonizing certain discourses because that's how we've come to understand the world and then that's how we've come to understand human rights around the world and we've come to understand certain parts of the world as being more problematic Mm -hmm. than others when obviously that's not the case it's just some of them get more of the spotlight Mm So I know something you're also working on is decolonizing knowledge and that comes through your research, as well as thinking about decolonizing institutions like universities, like Cambridge. So could you speak about that a little bit?
2: Oh, decolonizing knowledge. Uh, I think I need to probably even give a context. It's something that I think coming to Cambridge, coming to Cambridge for my PhD, I had I've always been so critical of um, hegemony, or so, but also the the whole decolonized movement, and not just knowledge, but in you know in everything. One one, I think there's one person we lose in this whole decolonized uh, work, because they 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 were not probably with the they are not in the West. I mean they're actually in the West, but if you've heard of Ngugi was young Gugi is a Kenyan scholar, writer actually, a more scholar, writer, and he wrote a very, very good book. I wish it should be like the main text in decolonize decolonizing. And it says, it's called Decolonizing Our Minds. And I remember I read that book about 15, is it 15 years ago? About 15 years ago, I read that book um, at home in Kenya. But then, of course, I was not maybe mature intellectually mature enough to really understand what he was saying, because also, I was also in a context where this was not that important at that time. But I still remember reading Goge's Decolonize Our Minds, and I thought, "Wow, this is so profound. but what does this mean or oh, this is and 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 it kind of it should have then prepared me for my future. <laughs> But it's interesting. But that's that's how my first brush with say, what is to decolonize or decolonizing minds, decolonizing knowledge came through reading Gogi. I think my dad had him on in one in his shelf in the house. So, but then later on coming to, and also going to university, I studied I studied a proper science degree. So even this kind of critical what knowledge was not part of. We were just doing science exactly so knowledge production was not part of the discussion you know we were busy trying to create better uh, uh, science in in our field Mm -hmm. so it's so it's and it's interesting how now i actually see oh god even science stem needs to be decolonized so badly (laughs) so then i think fast forward coming to the Africa Leadership Center here at King's College London, which also uses a very decolonial approach to scholarship, especially in peace and security. So probably that was my first real intellectual brush with what is this knowledge production, there's a problem. And that's when I realized actually there's a problem, not just in knowledge production, in how we see the world, in these discourses that we've accepted as neutral and I was coming from working from a human rights organization where we didn't question anything we were good human rights activists you know liberal peace and all these things were so important to us and they're they're still very important but we as activists also activists need to be critical and that's lacking also because then I think you become a better activist so Uh, So, I think my what so what what you're asking about what it means, and so that's my brush. I think my long history with this decolonized movement, but coming to Cambridge, then this has become very important. And there are lots of things going on because I think because of the context of where the movement is at. South Africa started with roads must fall, the whole uh, that was about 2014, 2013. And then the struggle went to Oxford, roads, the roads there must fall, and of course being here and with a, a number of students, uh, one especially, I remember Tuskeen Adam is probably the first person who organized a meeting and we all came together. But even then we were meeting with a number of people, Mavish, Ahmed, uh, Lola, and quite a bunch of people about how do we decolonize Cambridge. Now that, and not because now that everybody was decolonizing the university, of course, yes, that was a big, a big um, kind of um, in, uh, impetus. But also having, all these were people also from the global south who've lived this experience and who feel, you know, why aren't we seeing our, why, what is wrong with, for instance, the reading lists? Why aren't we seeing our scholars there and we are doing, say, African politics or law, I mean, or, or uh, development work, you know? Asian, South Asian studies, but we can't see ourselves. So it's through that, and I think that's one of the things that kind of inspired us, and also because of the movements around. But also to say that there's also this erroneous uh, thinking that decolonized movements have started or recently with South Africa and and, uh, Oxford. No, no, De-colonize, the decolonized, the academy, decolonized scholarship was there in the 60s in African universities. Gogiwa wa this book actually he writes about decolonizing minds. He had taken that struggle in the 1960s, for instance, the Engli- then what was called the English department at the University of Nairobi, soon after independence, and he became the first Af- black African Uh, chair of the department. And the first thing he did, he formed a committee with a a number of people and they said, we need to decolonize our scholarship. Because of course, everything was cut and paste from the University of London. Most of these universities uh, in the English that were formerly occupied, countries that were formerly occupied by the British just kind of cut and paste everything from the University of London. So they were doing English and they had all these academics from Cambridge and Oxford and he said, no, what is this scholarship? We can't read ourselves. And that is what is happening. And I, I like the work that uh, Lola Olufemi and Priya Gopala are doing in English. But then, this was then in an African context. And one of the things they did was change, first, the department. And it was called the Department of Literature, so that it can be everyone's literature. And they brought in things like oral, oral literature. Because many, lots of African scholarship was based on orality. And so we can't be saying we're just reading Shakespeare because his text, and because we can't see books written by African scholars, there is no scholarship. So they say, no, we're going to make oral literature an examinable subject, an important subject, and we had some of the best brains on the African continent in that department, decolonizing knowledge actively, like um, Okot Bibotec, the one who wrote famous uh, Ugandan scholar, and so many others. So. That has was ongoing. The University of Dar es Salaam that was ongoing. Ibado. So also, it's we should not lose track of those people who started the movement.
0: So often, when the conversation of decolonizing the academy comes up, or introducing new perspectives and new languages, uh, there's an attempt to kind of needle them in into pre-existing frameworks. So there's no actual interrogation of epistemology. There's no interrogation of whether these new materials or new ways of thinking can actually be integrated into pre-existing frameworks. But instead, you just append some new uh, individual with a different face from a different place saying pretty much the same thing. And you call that some kind of diversity, right? When introducing subaltern voices creates so much discord right mm-hmm. because it usually contravents the exact mm-hmm. <laughs> episteme as it already exists yeah. um at what point do like do you go all the way and destroy all the boundaries or how how, how do we kind of negotiate con- continuing to see academia as it exists or do we have to reimagine what academia needs mm-hmm. to be like how far does this project go i guess is my question
2: that's a very good question yeah. I mean and that's a good question that especially now that we are s- we are back to the whole debate as I say the debate was there in the 60s in the African context in the sub in the Indian subcontinent and that's why we had people like um uh, Spivak mm-hmm. and and uh what those po- that post colonial group subaltern studies came from India specifically in the 70s yes i think even Depeche then and all those people homi baba before they all moved to america they were busy challenging the same discourse and so what does it look like <laughs> i think that's something we should and that's also something i keep wondering also because i have seen i have seen i think it's a continuum and what it looks like or what it should it should look like is really based on it's it's uh, it's because of this epistemic friction and ep- epistemic fi- frictions between the hegemon that most of the time doesn't want to let go. You know, any day the English faculty. You saw even the comments in the articles that were there recently. Even the backlash from that newspaper article that Lola Olifemi, the student who was leading that, uh, found its. Oh, these people want to get rid of our English scholars. And yet it's a Department of English in Cambridge, which is not true. And I think we, we can all benefit from everybody. And for me, a truly uh, diverse space that is decolonized, is accepted, look like f- the, the those, how many are we? Six of us are around this table, coming from very diverse backgrounds. Can you imagine the knowledge that we, how rich we would be, how Cambridge would rich, w- how Cambridge would be rich as an institution intellectually, and also the the f- the six of us how we could benefit so much from each other if our vi- our knowledges were valued equally, and let to be, because the challenge we have with many institutions that now many people are saying oh we need to decolonize is because one no one type of knowledge and kind of uh, has been you know, the epistemic hegemon. And that knowledge is problematic because of where it comes from, you know? The hegemon and this whole modernity, colonial. um, So most of the time, because of where it comes from, and then that knowledge is what you're supposed to adapt. And because many scholars have come through institutions and not just here, in in the west even in africa because of how the or oh, in africa in asia in latin america in the middle east i think the middle east is much better because of, also because of the language mm-hmm. and 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 a different culture or oh, in china people ask i uh, have already have new another epistemic uh, trajectory mm-hmm. but anyone who was colonized it 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 needs a, you, i think they are just as pro- those institutions are just as problematic if they have not taken time to rethink uh what what they were learning and how important it was you know so so the, the, so i think for me a, a truly decolonized space is a space where all knowledges are taken as equal and then we can all benefit from each other and not just at, it, at an intellectual level even at a cultural everyday level of your lived experience as a student we should not we should not feel that we need to conform to a certain culture i should let be let to be with my if kenyanness Iranianness, indianness you know you should be let to be and that culture should be seen as just as important as an english culture and then we we get to learn and you can see the difference uh, cuz i think in the us during the the 60s and the many Uh, The U.S., as much as it's also hugely problematic, the academy, but many of these discussions went on in the 60s in certain places, in Latin America also, I think later. But you can see the discourse there, not in the U.S., especially in Latin America. I wish I could hear Spanish, but I remember one scholar who came and they were telling us what it looks like, and the process is still going. Like in Bolivia, for instance, I think the indigenous people are saying, you know, this is our scholarship. Can you privilege it as you've been privileging um, uh, other forms of scholarship? So it's, we, it's how do we, we need to keep engaging. And, and I think there are people who, for instance, and I was saying it's a continuum. So on one side, there are also people who argue even the university is also a problematic space. It's, it's, it comes with a lot of privilege. It, the minute you, you put a university, and the way the university was constructed. I mean, I've been reading a book about the history of Cambridge. It's, 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 it was really created to be this hegemonic ivory tower and many other universities in the world. And so I have actually a friend, not a friend, but a friend of somebody who started something again in Uganda called a university of the people. So that's, I think, the other extreme end, where they believe, instead of having this university or uh, walls and everything, why, do, it's it, because it's, it's based on the assumption that knowledge can come from this space, you know, and then we prioritize that knowledge. Why don't we go to the villages and what where all these people have, uh, who've, who've their lived experiences and document that life as scholarship? And consider that as scholarship. So if you want to learn anything, you go and sit with those people. But of course, this is also a very neoliberal time, capitalist. Though I think maybe that would have been possible many years. And even now, we can have bits of that. But of course, it, it's not sustainable. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting to see people are thinking very radically about the university as based with the community and the people and how you go and sit with villagers as opposed to this that would be extreme but for me i think i favor a space where even if we're going to retain the institutions as they are we need leadership that appreciates knowledges especially if you have a university with so many different uh, diverse group of students that brings also those whether it's academics from all regions if you're going to truly call yourself a global university that is progressive in the 21st century.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for that. And I think, I think it's really important the question posed, Herrera, because I think
2: it, it becomes really difficult to be
1: teleological about how we think about the, the university as an institution that is necessarily to become inclusive and to become intersectional and to become diversified and decolonized, especially because the narrative that, that I've certainly personally encountered here when pushing on that front amongst senior staff has at times been, well, no matter what diversity practices we put into place or decolonization practices we put in place, this isn't going to change things. And so they sit back with a complacency that there isn't an end and therefore it's not worth pursuing. Mm -hmm. And so I think like with this sort of constant reformulation of a teleological idea of what the academy ought to be like Mm -hmm. we ought to constantly be aware of reframing that and readjusting that and bringing to the attention of these very people Mm -hmm. that actually the academy should reflect the world as a whole and that changes every day right Mm -hmm. so the authorship Mm -hmm. the 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 issues that matter Mm -hmm. the politics the culture everything changes all the time and so the academy ought to change with it otherwise we're going to be stuck Back in thirteen forty seven yeah. or twelve o nine, whenever this institution was founded.
2: What yeah, 1249,
1: twelve,
0: twelve
2: Yeah. <laughs> A galaxy far far away. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So
1: anyway, to yeah. <laughs> to bring this issue back to yeah. human rights, yeah. Yeah. Jokey, I'm I'm wondering, how do you think we can mobilize human rights to this end? What's What's mm. human rights about the decolonized now movement?
2: Mm. That's a very good, I think, and that's one thing I think we need to do, especially human rights people. And having worked as a human rights person, and then come to the academy and studied all this critical work, and also very interested in decolonizing, I think we need to decolonize human rights. And and I see it also at various levels. I think at at the scholarship level, there's a lot of work on decolonizing work, like what I'm doing. Many scholars are also involved in um, the different different areas and different uh, kind of subjects. But but one the, and the, the the challenge I think we have with decolonize is what you're saying the pushback from the gatekeepers, you know, whether it's scholars, scholarly journals. Um, some 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 professions like law, law and human rights go together. Will the law with law? That's scho- called the law. F- you know the law kind of scholarship and the law faculties agree also. Let's speak to a decolonizing. What does decolonize mean? And also f- the challenge we have also with the human rights industry. It's actually an industry. Mm. It's an industrial complex. As um, there's a scholar who calls it industrial. Complex, and I think many people have argued for we. Yes, there's need for that, but because there are so many people involved, the scholars who are benefiting from the whole, you know, their careers and that kind of thing, and then there's these other tire of human rights activists across the world, very uncritical, um, taking also taking. Uh, Western hegemonic and epistemic practice Not just now practices because they do the implementation and funding. Because that's where the problem comes in. Because the funding comes from the West for most human rights. Mm -hmm. So that's why for me we need to go back again to this state. And the the role of leadership. You know we need good people who are interested in ensuring the rights of their, their their citizens are respected. In funding human rights organisations, let the state do it, you know, and the, the and not of course not just the state. Let's also have a lot of supporters, but also how do we? But also there are lots of people in the state that's the problem. Who elites in the state, who like in Kenya right now, who who then use who who challenge uh, the human rights sector for their own. Uh, selfish interests, you know, if, for instance, they feel that they, this, they, they want they want them to, to kind of support them. So there are all these challenges, I think, that we need to face. But um, if we can have more engagement between scholars, scholars and activists and practitioners, because there's so much literature on scholarship, on decolonizing human rights, on decolonizing the world, but then the activists, all they have is money from many um, good organizations yeah. that want to support human rights work and that that support needs to go on because there are so many people who are under threat and also many challenges but these two never get to meet and when they meet it's usually this scholar has come to consult so at that point they're not even right telling them anything critical mm-hmm. they are being paid often by again a western donor organization to review them or to see whether they can be funded. So it becomes very challenging. So we need spaces where this to meet, and, not, and also scholars from those countries also engage. So like in Kenya, it's so hard for scholars to engage again activists. All of them are in little groups against each other. And it's everywhere. It's not just in Kenya. Mm-hmm. you know. And as I said, when people meet, it's usually very transactional. Mm-hmm. So how do we make this as a community? so that our work is reflected to that. And, and that's why people like me, I believe, I'm a scholar activist, I want to be a scholar activist so that I can cross and I can keep crossing the two. And I think that as activists, because I think being human rights activist is important, being scholars is also important. We need to maybe find how we can work with the two.
0: Oh, Jokey, it's always such a pleasure talking to you. Um, So just in way of wrapping up our conversation, if there's one thing that you hope the audience could walk away with or take with them, uh, what would that be? What would you like our audience to know?
2: Um, I think one on decolonizing uh, scholarship, decolonizing human rights, I think it starts from you as an individual. Because we tend to focus so much on the movements, on what to do, and we we don't realize actually it starts from you. So decolonize yourself first as an individual, um, so so that those issues that so that you can actually join the, either join the movement or if you're in the scholarship, you you have already dealt with what you need to deal with first as an individual, and it's not something that. It's, 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 it's where we are all work in progress, myself and all of us. I think it's something we need to be constantly thinking what it means to be decolonized, whether you are a colonized person or, <laughs> or those uh, you are occupied or not. So let's decolonize our thinking. Uh, let's always, I think, be more empathetic, um, thinking and, and be critical, think, not just accepting norms as they are. I think the world would be better. If we had that more, if we we keep thinking about the, what this means to other people, are we privileging narratives, are we privileging epistems that may not be important, and uh, may not, that may not resonate? What, 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 and asking ourselves, what, then what means to, what is most important to the kind of people you're working with? But I think for me, it's about decolonizing ourselves first. Yeah.
1: So start with yourself is the message of today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Joki Wamai, and to our panelists. Uh, Thanks to our audience for joining us for another episode of Declarations, the Human Rights Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please do go to facebook.com slash declarationspodcast and let us know what you think. Follow us on Twitter at declarationspod and leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next week as we talk about the right to protest.